Welcome to the Faculty New Books podcast, covering the latest authors and publications from across the subject spectrum. You might get different definitions from different people, but my take on it is that the goal of science is to understand nature. And it achieves this by first asking questions of nature in the form of theoretical arguments. And those theoretical arguments get translated into hypotheses, which are assertions that nature behaves in a certain way. And these hypotheses may or may not be true. But the critical thing is that they are empirically testable, meaning that at least in principle, given enough time and money, you could collect some data that would support or refute your theory. And the important thing about the scientific theory is that it's, it's not like a mathematical theorem. If you prove a mathematical theorem, it's true forever. Whereas a scientific hypothesis can be supported by data, but it can't be sort of proved without any residual shadow of doubt. It's more a case that empirical observations of nature can strengthen or weaken the degree of support for a particular scientific hypothesis. And crucially, if when you look at nature, you collect data, the support for your hypothesis is weakened to the point where it becomes unsustainable, then you have to reformulate your, your hypothesis. It's, it's dead in the water. Okay? And Karl Popper, the scientific philosopher, formalized this idea by stating that a theory was a scientific theory if it was capable of being falsified. In other words, you could imagine an experiment that could actually demonstrate that the theory was wrong. And the classical example of that is that we worked with Newtonian mechanics as the, the, the truth for a couple of hundred centuries. And then in the early 20th century, relativistic mechanics uh, developed by Einstein and others took it over. And so that from a strict scientific point of view, although Newtonian mechanics is still extraordinarily useful, it's no longer true. It's been replaced. It's been falsified by being overtaken by more modern theories. And, and that idea of falsification is really, I think, the distinction between scientific method and, for example, um, artistic judgment. I mean, this is not a question of one being better or worse than the other. But, you know, I can express a view, uh, which I hold, that Charlie Parker was a greater jazz musician than John Coltrane. Not by much, but that would be my assertion. But there's, that's an opinion. And other people would argue equally legitimately the, the other way around. But when a scientific theory is falsified, then it's no longer a matter of opinion. And, and science proceeds by consensus, and it proceeds by replacing theories that are discredited by new and better theories, and they remain until they are in turn may be invalidated by future observations. And that's the scientific process. When I'm teaching statistics, and of course the book that we're talking about in this interview is a, is a textbook, it's a teaching book. When I'm teaching statistics, I start by explaining how scientists advance their understanding of nature by operating in these two quite different ways. The, the theoretical way, where you develop hypotheses, and the observational way, where you test those hypotheses against empirical data. And if you look first at the theoretical side, Scientific theories are usually, they're typically expressed in mathematical terms. So I've mentioned Newton's laws. They are formally expressed as mathematical equations. Mendelian inheritance in genetics is expressed as probabilities that certain things will happen when progeny uh, do or do not inherit particular parental characteristics. 
very topically, the evolution of an infectious disease epidemic like COVID-19 is studied by mathematical modelers who use equations to describe the progress of the epidemic. And one hopes that the equations that are driving public policy are indeed sustainable. We can never prove them because they're scientific theories, but they're supported by empirical observation of the epidemic in practice. Now, when you make predictions from these theoretical models, they very rarely match perfectly. So you could say that from a strict mathematical perspective, all theories are wrong. And indeed, a very famous statistician called George Box once said that all models are wrong, but some models are still useful. Now, sometimes the failure to match perfectly is really just a question of imperfect measurement, which is why Rutherford, a physicist, once said that if your experiment needed statistical analysis, you needed to do a better experiment. But more, more often in my experience, and certainly in the life sciences where I do all of my work, imperfection is an inherent part of the system. Genetic inheritance is not perfectly predictable. Okay, it's, it's a random process to some extent. It's partially predictable, but not perfectly. Disease is spread in ways that are partially predictable, but not perfectly predictable. And what that means is that you're dealing with so-called stochastic processes, processes whose behavior involves an element of randomness. And that's where statistics comes in, because if you're dealing with processes of that kind, your predictions are expressed as probability distributions. And so what you have to do is you have to have a methodology for deciding not whether a prediction is exactly right, because it won't be, but whether the degree to which a prediction is not exactly right is compatible with the inherent random or stochastic variation in the system that you're trying to study. And in fact, some published results are, are, um, have the interesting characteristic that they give improbably good predictions. I was told as a student that this is true of some of Mendel's very early data, that the predictions were improbably close uh, to the truth. It's a bit like uh, tossing a coin a hundred times and getting exactly 50 heads. That's actually a very surprising outcome. So if we want to make sense of data like this, that data that has some stochastic elements in its generation, then that's the essence of statistical inference. It's not mathematical deduction. It's not saying that something is true or false. It's statistical inference. It's weighing the evidence from imperfect data, noisy data, if you like, as to whether the underlying signal in that noisy data is compatible with the scientific theory that you're trying to understand. So that's why statistical modeling, in other words, stochastic modeling, and data analysis, in other words, comparing predictions from stochastic models, which generate probability distributions, with data which generate frequencies in which certain events happen quite a lot or occasionally or hardly ever, that's why modeling and data analysis are integral to scientific method. But the design side is also important. And the design side is because if you actually look directly at nature in the raw, very often the thing that you're trying to understand is obscured by all sorts of extraneous effects that you're really not interested in. And just as an example that I've made up to illustrate that, suppose I ask the question, is a vegetarian diet more healthy than a non-vegetarian diet? Now, that's a different question from, are vegetarians healthier than non-vegetarians? Now, I can answer that second question by directly observing vegetarians and non-vegetarians. And if the vegetarians are healthier and live longer, I have my answer. 
but they're not necessarily living longer and healthier because they're vegetarians. They might also be non-smokers. They may not drink alcohol. They may exercise regularly. They may be wealthier than uh, non-vegetarians on average, which unfortunately wealth is a rather good prediction of health outcomes, in, uh, well, even in wealthy countries like uh, the UK. So what you do as an experimenter, you design a study in which you control for as many of these extraneous factors as you can. And that means that you sharpen your look at the data so that you've controlled for all the extraneous rubbish that you really don't want to know about. And what's left is a clearer signal because you've got rid of a lot of the noise. And statistical design theory, in a nutshell, basically tells you how to design your experiments most efficiently based on the experimenter's knowledge of which factors they're interested in in this case, vegetarian diet versus non-vegetarian diet, and which factors they're not interested in that might obscure the answer to the question of interest, which are other lifestyle factors, which may well be correlated with vegetarianism, but there isn't a causal link. So it, that's why statistics, in my view, is relevant before scientists collect data in advising how to design the data collection. It's relevant in linking the scientific theories expressed as mathematical models to the empirical evidence represented by data. And statistical inference is the bridge between that theoretical mathematical model and the empirical data that you collect when you observe or experiment on nature, on natural materials. Well, in the book, we, we, we get, most of our examples come from agriculture and medicine. Uh, and that's because those are the areas that we actually know best although the principles, I think, apply to many other branches of science. And in fact, historically, the two main pillars of, of experimental design were developed not in a university statistics department. They were developed about 100 years ago in an agricultural research station by the great statistician R.A. Fisher, who never held uh, an academic post in statistics. He, he held a chair of genetics at University College London after he'd worked at the agricultural field station. And about 100 years ago, he introduced two fundamental principles. The first is called blocking. And that's just a word that uh, is a shorthand for the idea that if you want to compare vegetarians and non-vegetarians, let's say, with respect to their health, you really want to compare vegetarians and non-vegetarians who are as similar as possible in respect of everything else. So in Fisher's context, where he was doing experiments on crops, that meant that if he wanted to compare the yields from two different varieties of a crop, let's say two different varieties of wheat, then it was important to make sure that they were grown on comparably fertile pieces of ground. So the way he did this is he said, OK, if I've got a field, and if hypothetically that field has a north-south fertility gradient running through it, what I should do is divide that field into east-west strips. And I should make sure that I compare my two varieties of wheat within a single strip. Okay, so in a strip at the fertile end of the field, I'll get two high yields. In a strip at the barren end of the field, I'll get two low yields. But what I'll be doing in both extremes is comparing like with like. And as a result, you get a more precise comparison between the two things that you're interested in, which are the two varieties of wheat. You're not trying to understand how fertility affects wheat growth. If you were, you'd design the experiment differently. So that's the first principle, blocking. The second principle that Fisher introduced was randomization. And physically, that's very easy to envisage. Now we've got our idea of a strip running east-west across a field. 
So we divide the strip into little squares. And then we have to decide which square gets the first variety and which square gets the second variety of wheat. So rather than just putting all of the first variety on the left-hand side of the strip and all the other varieties on the east side, we randomly allocate the different varieties among the little squares within each strip. And, it, and in doing that, you do two things. The first thing is you get rid of any possible accusation of subjective bias, all right? Because you've randomized, you haven't chosen, you've randomized your allocation of wheat varieties to little squares. Incidentally, and this was important in, in Fisher's day, and arguably I think it's still important, the randomization itself means that you can analyze the data that you get when you grow the wheat without having to rely on assumptions about the particular probability distributions that would describe the variation in a wheat yield. Now, often you can get similar answers by making those assumptions, but if you really want to make an assumption with the minimal, sorry, if you want to do an analysis with the minimum set of assumptions possible, then you can use the randomization to decide whether the difference that you see between the average yield in the first variety and the average yield in the second variety, is that difference compatible with random chance? Or is it telling you there really is a difference between the yields of the two varieties? So those two principles are really underlying the whole subject of statistical design. And sort of moving away from agriculture and to my main area of interest these days, which is medicine, for reasons I've never fully understood, in medical research, randomization is very highly valued. And it, you could even say it's venerated. It's almost a religious uh, um, belief that you should conduct a clinical trial by randomly allocating different treatments to different patients in the trial. And this is indeed an excellent thing to do. Surprisingly, in my view, what medical researchers very rarely do is build on Fisher's second principle of blocking. Okay, they usually use very simple experimental designs rather than the more complex blocked designs that are common in agriculture and engineering and other disciplines. I don't really know why this is, but it's, uh, I'm sure there are good reasons. Historically, randomization ideas were more or less independently, to the best of my knowledge, advocated by Fisher in an agricultural setting and by Austin Bradford Hill in a medical setting when he ran the first clinical randomized clinical trials around about the, the time of the Second World War, well, the first modern randomized clinical trials around about the, uh, the time of the Second World War, when penicillin was a new discovery and in very short supply. And there were ethical reasons for deciding which patients would or wouldn't get a treatment that was expected to be very beneficial to them. So basically, that's uh, fundamentally why, in all the examples in the book, whatever we're dealing with, whether it's comparing survival of patients on different modes of renal therapy, okay, or whether it's looking at different wheat yields, or whether it's looking at pollution due to uh, environmental processes contaminating the air that we breathe, wherever it's possible, you design the experiment using these two basic principles of blocking and randomization. If that's not possible, because sometimes you have no option but to observe nature in the raw, then you have to rely on statistical modeling. And statistical modeling, in effect, is saying, I can't design it for practical reasons. I can't design an experiment, which means that I can use the randomization of the design as the basis for drawing conclusions. 
And therefore, I have to make some additional assumptions about the underlying processes I'm trying to understand. And those additional assumptions are called a statistical model. Okay, and so when you build models, you are buying information from those assumptions. Whereas if you design a completely randomized experiment, you are using the randomization of the experiment to ensure that the results you derive are valid. That probably makes you think that if you can design a randomized experiment, you should. And broadly speaking, I'd agree with you. But there are a lot of situations where you can't and where vital knowledge is derived by observational studies rather than randomized experiments. And the classic example from the 20th century is the association between smoking and lung cancer, which nowadays everybody believes, but nobody would ever run a randomized trial if you're ran randomizing people to smoking or non-smoking. Okay. Survival analysis is, is a bit of a buzzword for statisticians. And of course, the very words make it sound terribly important. I mean, who, couldn't, who wouldn't be interested in survival analysis? You know? But what it means in a statistical language is that when you design an experiment, you're, you're usually comparing at least, two, at least two different experimental conditions. Okay? And the principles of blocking and randomization apply to that design. Now, if what you're doing is comparing the yields of two varieties of wheat, then basically you get the average yield from one variety, the average yield from the other variety, you look at the difference, you then look at how much noise there is in the data and you reach a conclusion. Now, if the question is, which mode of renal dialysis is better for patients who are awaiting transplantation? Because basically, if you've got kidney failure, renal dialysis will keep you alive until, one hopes, you get offered a kidney transplant, which will then make you well. And there, it really is literally a matter of life and death. So what you want to do is to keep the patient alive for as long as possible so that if and when a transplant kidney becomes available, they are in sufficiently good health to undergo the surgery and have a, a, an improvement in their quality of life. Now, the reason why those kind of experiments are difficult to analyze is you can't wait for everyone to die. Right? That would be extremely unfortunate and uh, unethical and uh, really uh, a lot of wasted human life. So what you do instead is you say, we're going to follow up these patients for a certain fixed period of time. And those who have died, we can look at which the, the mode of dialysis they're on and we can compare. But there's a lot of information in those who haven't died because those patients will have had kidney failure one year ago, five years ago, 10 years ago, 20 years ago. And you do need special statistical techniques to allow you to analyze both the data where you've seen the survival endpoint, the patient has died, and when you haven't seen it yet. And knowing that somebody survived for at least five years is a better piece of information than knowing they've survived at least two years. And you have to take account of that. So survival analysis has its own particular method, methods, but the underlying principles are just like any other statistical analysis. And you know, there's nothing in that sense special about survival analysis. Well, why did we write the book? Amanda Chetwind and I wrote the book as an antidote to what I rather disparagingly call the recipe book approach. And the recipe book approach is the one that's all too often used in, in so-called service teaching of statistics, where somebody decides very wisely that, for example, uh, doctors, medics, should know something about statistics. So they put a course of statistics on in the first year of a medical degree. So in the UK, that means a bunch of 18-year-olds who've come to university really fired up about wanting to learn medicine 
get, get taught statistics, which by and large they hate. And furthermore, historically, they're usually taught it rather badly, in my opinion, because they're taught statistical arithmetic. They're taught statistical techniques. It's very rare that there would be any general discussion in a course of that nature of how to design good studies to get high quality information when you're doing research on patients who are rather precious resources. And so to my mind, it, it's it, all they're doing is teaching some recipes. And that's not that what they're not teaching is understanding. But how could you teach scientific understanding of statistical thinking to a bunch of 18 year olds who've come to university to study medicine? So the view that we took in our teaching, and it's reflected in the book, is that we really wanted to teach students who are scientifically mature, but statistically naive. And so we taught, we taught first year master's students across a range of scientific disciplines, predominantly in the life sciences, because that's where we work, but also some environmental scientists, occasionally engineers and physicists and chemists would join the class. It was open to anyone in the, in the science faculty. And the idea was to really hammer home the underlying principles to make the students understand why understanding statistical concepts almost really a bit like learning a little bit of a foreign language when you go on holiday. You may not become fluent in that foreign language, but a little bit of local language knowledge can enrich your holiday in Spain or France or Italy, allowing you to communicate at least at a basic level and access things that are valuable to you that you might miss out on if you didn't have a single word of understanding in the language. So if you like, we were actually trying to get people to understand how statisticians think, to understand how statisticians collaborate with scientists, and hopefully to encourage these students in turn when they became professional scientists, to want to collaborate with statisticians, because that's the way in which, uh, in my opinion, good statistics gets done. It's by statisticians and scientists talking to each other. And so that's why the book is, is very light on formulae compared to most introductory text books, but also much broader in scope, so that it discusses different kinds of scientific uh, study for which statistical ideas. And, and I guess what, what we both hope is that although the book is a textbook for a first year postgraduate course, I hope it helps readers from whatever background they are to, to sort of really see the distinction between statistical science and statistical mathematics. And those are two terms I'm, I'm fond of personally. They're not original, but, but, but they're ones that I like to use when I'm talking to, to younger colleagues at the start of their career. Because to me, the distinction is that a statistical scientist is someone who operates as part of a multidisciplinary team in a particular substantive area of science, medicine, the environment, sociology, economics, whatever. And critically, I think that if they're going to succeed at that, they need to care about that domain and they need to be driven by it. So if a statistician is indifferent, to whether they're dealing with medical data or social data or engineering data or financial data, I think it's very difficult for them to become a good statistical scientist. However, there are also equally useful but very different kinds of statisticians called statistical mathematicians in my world. And a statistical mathematician is somebody who works on the underpinnings of the discipline. They work on statistical theory, probability theory, inferential theory, computational algorithms, which are generically applicable, which are agnostic as to their application, which are equally useful for medicine, agriculture, engineering, physics, whatever, wherever they're used. 
And I, I very much feel that as a discipline, the statistics discipline has to support both kinds of statisticians. We need them both. You could imagine, and there are one or two people along this planet, uh, that it's possible to excel at both, but it is rare, in my opinion. And for my part, I spent the first few years of my career being a not very good statistical mathematician. And it was only when I w went to work in a forestry research institute and actually started understanding how data were really collected in the field and all of the reasons why scientists were collecting those data in the first place that I began to see where I could personally derive more, more satisfaction and I think ultimately be more successful in a broad sense by becoming more of a statistical scientist and working in substantive areas. So I worked in ecology and the environment for a number of years. I went to Australia to work for the Australian Scientific Civil Service. I then visited, in a very, very uh, influential time of my career, the Johns Hopkins University School of Public Health in Baltimore in the USA. And ever since then, I've, been, I've worked uh, almost exclusively in biomedical research and particularly in uh, population health research especially in, in uh, developing countries in Africa and uh, Southeast Asia and Latin America. And for me, that was the right direction to go. But early in my career, I could have gone the other way and brushed up my mathematical skills and become a statistical mathematician.